Okay, so today we are finishing Nehemiah. It's our final sermon on the book of Nehemiah. You will know if you've been with us over this time that um, it's an account of Nehemiah, this guy returning to Jerusalem um, from uh, the people that the Jewish people have been taken into exile by the Babylonians and uh, then there's kind of a change of, of empire, the Persians are in charge and, and it's during that time that um, Nehemiah um, is able to go back to Jerusalem and to help rebuild the walls and what's happening in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So he goes back to help rebuild the walls um, and um, we're going to be finishing off this great um, uh, biblical account today. So Nehemiah chapter 13, we're not going to read it all, we're just kind of going to go from um, passage to passage within Nehemiah 13. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn it to Nehemiah 13. It would be really tempting just to finish this uh, series on Nehemiah at last week. Stop there. Finish. Don't go on to chapter 13. I thought Matthew did great last week. I listened to it on the, the podcast and I thought, wow, that's great. It's exciting. Take responsibility. Come on, guys. Yeah, we take responsibility. And, uh, you know, we had this thing of the people last week of chapter 10. They're deciding to take responsibility. We're going to take responsibility for our city. We're going to take responsibility for worship in our community. We're going to take responsibility for families. They, yeah, they're up for it. In chapter 11, we see... Um, the, uh, we see people saying, right, okay, we're going to willingly, um, we're going to willingly serve in the city. We're going to stay in the city and serve and do our bit and take up responsibility. And then we get chapter 12, which is this wonderful celebration of the wall that has been completed. They've completed, th- this was Nehemiah's mission, to complete the walls of Jerusalem. And, and it's been done, they've done it. And uh, they have a celebration. It's a massive celebration. And so they've got musicians coming out of all sorts of places. And uh, they're excited. And all our musicians will be really excited. And they're celebrating. And they've got harps and lyres. And I don't even know what they are. They've got more, <laughs> they've, they've got more tambourines than a 1980s charismatic church. And they're all going for it. And they've got choirs. And they've got singers. And, and then they get one choir. They say, right, okay, you're going to go around this part of the wall and the choir will get on the wall and they kind of go around. Okay, choir, you're going to go in another direction, the opposite direction, another choir going in another And then they meet at the temple and they celebrate and they're singing and it's joyous. And it's not hype. It's not hype. It says that God has made them rejoice with great joy because of seeing the, temp- the, the city walls restored and all that God has done through them. And so we hit chapter 13. So let's look at chapter 13. So starting from verse 1. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all those who were of foreign descent. Before this, 
Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priest. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then put them back, and then put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learnt that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the official and asked them, Why is this why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Just going down to chapter, uh, verse 15. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And then finally, just skipping down to verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who'd married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like this that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you are too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Elishab, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I, made, I also made provision for the contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember we, me with favour, my God. So there you go. 
The wall had been completed. The work had been done. All would be well now. But the problem was, all the work hadn't been done. So the wall had been renewed, the wall had been rebuilt, but there was another work that had not been done. Actually, people's desires, people's hearts, hadn't been renewed. And so we get to this final chapter, and Nehemiah realizes that the people really haven't changed. That there is still something that he hadn't been able to change in this people. And he tells us five ways that they have not been faithful to God. They had welcomed in Ammonites and Moabites, and because of history, God had told them not to do this. Elishib the priest had lent not only a room, but Nehemiah records a big room. He'd lent a big room in the temple to Tobiah. Do you remember him? Remember Tobiah when we looked through, started from Nehemiah? He was the guy that, he, he, was, he was all out trying to stop the rebuildings of the wall. He was mocking them. He was trying to get in the way. He was trying to stop what was going on. Thirdly, the people hadn't been given a proportion of their produce to the Levites. They hadn't been honouring the Sabbath day when no work was meant to be done. Instead, they were out working, they were out buying, they were out selling. And they had married and had children with women from outside of the Jewish people. But Nehemiah had been faithful. He was a great leader. Nehemiah was passionate for God's glory. Nehemiah wanted the people to love God with all their hearts. But I want us to see this morning as we finish this book that Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. See, the Old Testament and the New Testament aren't these kind of uh, separate things that always live apart from each other and you kind of have, well, in, in, the, in the Old Testament you get the, the, the nasty, mean God who likes war, but in the New Testament you get Jesus who's the God of love and God of faithfulness. It's not like there's this kind of separated out thing. No, no, all of Scripture very much tells one great, big, great story. And so in the Old Testament we get, in Israel's history, it's working towards the coming of Jesus. So we get... Um, in the New Testament we get Hebrews which says look, there's these things in the Old Testament which are kind of like shadows of Jesus they're kind of like they're kind of like a pointing to what's to come a pointing to something greater a pointing to Jesus so we get, we get King David do you know Jesus is the greater David as David is shepherd boy. Many of you, I'm sure, will know the story. Conquered Goliath, beat Goliath for the people. But do you know Jesus is the greater David who overcame sin for us? So you get, you get in, in the Bible people who are kind of shadows of what's to come, shadow of who's to come. 
And David couldn't even live up to even his own standards. But Jesus, Jesus would remain faithful. Jesus would not fail. Sometimes you get events in the Old Testament that are kind of pointing and leading up to Jesus and pointing to something better. So uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that there's a rock that the, peop- the, people are, the people of Israel have come out of Egypt and there's this rock and it spurts out water to feed the people. And Paul says, that rock's Jesus. It's pointing to who Jesus is. Jesus will, will spiritually satisfy your thirst. And as Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of God's city, so Jesus rebuilds and gathers God's people. It's wonderful. This is the church. He's building the church right across this world. And as Nehemiah failed to change the hearts of the people and to turn them to obedience and faithfulness, Jesus gives us new hearts. Jesus makes us new. Jesus enables us to follow him and be obedient to him. Okay, so how does Jesus help us to be faithful where the people of Nehemiah's day weren't? Well, let's have a look at this passage we've read in a little more detail. Let's look at some of the ways they weren't faithful. So we have Eliashib. And he allowed Tobiah to take up part of the temple have a room in the temple, to put his stuff in the temple. See, the temple was the core of their religious life. It was holy, it was set apart, it was, it was meant for worship. It was where they encountered God. They came to encounter God in the temple together. So what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah, it, he gets to buy stuff and he throws it out. He throws it out of the temple. He cleanses it. Does that sound familiar? Do you know an account of that in the New Testament, in the Gospels? Jesus coming to the temple in Jerusalem and throwing out the money changers, turning the tables of the traders. So the Bible says that if you're a Christian, you're a temple. I think Raj read it out. Um, when the boys came out with their uh, thing they'd made, says we are a temple. God is building a temple. We are a temple where we encounter God together. But you are a temple. This is one Corinthians three. It says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? You're a place where God dwells. And Jesus is passionate for his temples not to be filled up with other things that shouldn't be there. So I want to ask you this morning, what have you allowed into your heart that needs to be cleared out by Jesus? Failures? Legalism? Bitterness? Hurts? An unhelpful relationship? Something unhelpful that you watch on TV? What you spend your free time doing? What have you allowed in that Jesus 
just this morning wants to, by the Spirit, clean out? What, what is challenging you to not faithfully love God? He wants to clean those out of our hearts. Let's just stop for a minute. Perhaps things come to mind right now. I can think of things that come to my mind. Why don't we just stop for a minute and just pray for a moment and ask him by the Spirit just to put his finger on those things but also to help us, empower us to clean out those things so I'm not going to have those in my heart. I'm going to allow you to deal with them, Jesus. Just for a minute, just stop. Let's take a moment to do that. Okay, so what else? What else was going on in this passage? Well, the people were meant to be faithfully putting aside a tenth of their produce, their grain, their oil, their wine, and give it to the Levites. It was called a tithe, and it was meant so that the Levites could concentrate on helping the people to worship God. They were freed up to do that. But we find that that's not been happening. We find what's been happening is the Levites have been having to go back and work in their fields. And all the people had to do was to be faithful in the things that God had given them. See, Jesus has quite a lot to say about money and possessions. And uh, he says this in Luke chapter 16. Whoever can be entrusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So I want to ask, are you faithful with the things that God's given you? Money? Possessions? Hey, maybe it's the talents and the gifts that you have. He's been faithful with those things. Let's be clear. Jesus is not saying in this passage, if you, if you can't handle money, sorry, if you can handle money, then you'll get into heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. But, but what he's saying is this. He's, he's saying, look, money, stuff, it's really not true riches. Do you know what? There's something better Jesus is saying. Listen, learn to be faithful in that little stuff. Like, like money and like possessions. And do you know what? If you're faithful in that, you will know a greater satisfaction. You'll know a greater fulfillment in life. In knowing me, Jesus says, you will know true riches. See, it's radical, isn't it? It changes how we think about money. It changes how we think about the things that we own. It changes, things, it changes how we think about the talents we have. Okay, what about the Sabbath? The Sabbath was this one day when work would stop, when people would rest. 
God had given them the Sabbath for their good. It was to give them a rhythm to life. It was to help them so that work was not always so tiring and life was just not always so hard. It was to remind them that God was their provider. That they didn't have to work every hour. Because God provided for them. And they were meant to be distinctive from the other nations. But actually what was happening is that they were just, they were just trading constantly. And this kind of constant trading, this constant doing, was showing that actually it was as if they were worshipping work and not God. So I want to ask again, are you being faithful in your work? Are you being faithful at school? Are you being faithful in volunteering things that you do? You know, as Christians, we're called not to worship work, but to worship God through our work. Worship God through our study. Worship God through how we volunteer. That means working faithfully. It means working with integrity. That means working with honesty. Hey, do you know what? It's easy to be faithful on a Sunday morning, isn't it? It's really easy to be faithful then, now. Tell you what, it's much harder on a Wednesday morning when you're at work or when you're at school, when you're looking after the family, when no one's watching. But it's also working, studying, volunteering, knowing that God's your provider, knowing that he provides for you, knowing it's not all down to you and how much you can attain and how much you can earn and how much you can work hard. But about knowing that he provides. And he's with you. Okay, moving on. So what about this thing about the marrying people from other tribes and other nations? This is where Nehemiah gets really physical. He get, he's beating some men. He's pulling out their hair. He's re- you can do that with me. <laughs> he is getting really physical, really angry about this one. You're okay, you're fat. <laughs> Look, this is not an argument for marriages today only being in the same nationality or the same race. It's really not. Um, the, the problem was this. The problem was Nehemiah knew the importance of the calling of this people to be a light to the nations, to reveal God. Now, if they were going to do that, for generations to come, that wouldn't happen in intermarriage with other nations. What that would simply do is that children wouldn't know the call of God on their people. They wouldn't be able to speak the language, is what was happening. They, wouldn't, they would have a different family line. See, Nehemiah knew they had to be faithful in passing on the calling of God that was on them as the people at that time, as God's people at that time. Passing it on to the next generation. So what does that look like for us? Actually, the church has got a call on it too. 
We've got, in fact, we've got the very same call. We've, and we've got a call to be a light to the nations and the same responsibility to teach the next generation. That may mean getting alongside younger people, helping them grow in their faith, helping them step into new things, helping pick them up when perhaps it doesn't go so well. This is what Psalm 145 says. One generation shall praise your works to another and declare your mighty acts. Bible teacher John Piper says, look, you've got, to be, you've got to see that this is not just about teaching information and letting the next generation know the right information, as important as that is, but it's about burning a passion and a fire in their hearts. One generation will praise your works to another. So church, we've got a, a great privilege and responsibility to help our next generation burn with a passion for Jesus. Are you being faithful in that? Perhaps you've been a Christian for many, many years. Perhaps you've learned, often the hard way, that God is faithful in everything. And the faithfulness of God in following him. Listen, don't let it stop with you. Let it flow to the next generation. Let it spur the next generation. Let it ignite the next generation with a passion for Jesus. Hmm. Perhaps it's people on Alpha Plus. Perhaps it's people who are going through Alpha. Perhaps it's someone in your devoted group or your community group. Perhaps it's just someone you serve alongside. Be faithful in helping the next generation to love and serve Jesus. So there we go, faithfulness. It's a long-term thing. It's not simply, like like we say in this country, a flash in the pan. It's not simply here today, gone tomorrow. Faithfulness. It's long-term. And what this chapter teaches is this. And this is how one uh, pastor put it. Um, Faithfulness is often like this. Often we see faithfulness, and maybe even on a Sunday morning, we see faithfulness as the big things. Can we put up my picture for a check? It's almost like we treat faithfulness like a big check. And we kind of say, God, here's my big check to you, God. I'm giving you a thousand pounds. I'll go to the nations. You call me to the nations, I'll go. I will go. You call me to that next church plan, I'm going to go. You call me, I'm in such a mood that I'll stand on the top of one of the big bridges in Teesside and I'll shout your name, God the big faithful acts now I'm not mocking them I'm not demeaning them but actually it's almost as if God says okay take your cheque to the bank and cash it in for a thousand pounds worth of coins because you'll need them through life and cash it in for 50p's pounds pences because you'll need that bit of faith when you reach out to that person who's struggling at school. And you'll need it when that difficulty or hardship comes and you'll use it. Do you see? I'm not, I'm, I'm not 
I'm not demeaning big acts of faith. God will call many of us, I'm sure, to big acts of faith. But he also calls us to -to day-to-day acts of faith. He may say, you know, you're going to have to put together loads of those coins together because I'm going to call you to the next city or I'm going to call you to this thing at work. So here's the problem. If the message of Nehemiah, if we take the message of Nehemiah as just this, just be more faithful. Come on, church, be more faithful. I guarantee we'll probably be about as faithful as the people in Nehemiah's day. That's not the Christian message. See, Nehemiah realises it's got to come out of somewhere else. It's got to, faithfulness has got to come out of, even outside of him. And do you, do you remember, as we've been going through Nehemiah, there's just been times where he's kind of said, remember me, O God, for this act, or remember me, O God, for this kindness, or for this. He says it, kind of dots it through the book. But in this final chapter, which we didn't read this passage, but he says it in verse 22, he says, he starts the same, remember me, and then he says, and show mercy to me according to your great love. See, I think this is really telling. It kind of, it's Nehemiah saying he knows that no amount of faithfulness, either from the people or from in him, is enough to be right with God. It's got to come... He's kind of prophetically declaring that being right with God doesn't come from doing things to earn God's attention. No amount of faithful acts will earn us God's great love. Actually, we encounter God's love, his faithfulness in Jesus, and faithful living flows from there. And as we faithfully live, as he calls us to, we realise more and more how great his love really is. See, faithfulness in the Christian life is not simply trying our hardest from some inner strength to be faithful. It's about seeing the greater Nehemiah, Jesus, who was and is faithful. He's faithful in the way the Israelites weren't. He's faithful not only in clearing the temple, but being the true temple for us. He's faithful in giving us a real Sabbath, a Sabbath rest every day in him. He's faithful in being the one that came from that Jewish line and fulfilled the message that they carried. It's all about Jesus. Now turn with me just to one more Bible passage and we've almost finished. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 Verse 6, it says, But Christ is the faithful Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. He is the faithful Son. He is faithful as the Son over God's house. So how do, how do we live faithfully and obedient? By seeing that Jesus is faithful. By seeing that he's the faithful one over God's house. He was faithful through the cross. 
He's faithful in cleansing us from our sin. He's faithful in working in our lives. See, this passage doesn't say Christ was faithful. He says he is faithful. So today, he is faithful in our lives and we can put our trust in him. We're going to break bread and we're going to do it as a reminder of his faithfulness. But it is an act that reminds us of all that Jesus has done. That's a reminder that Jesus gathers us to him. See, in this act of breaking bread, which Christians have done for thousands of years, in this act that we do, it's not like we're doing something for God. We're showing him how faithful we can be. He's doing something for us. He's, doing, he's gathering us in. We often talk about hosting the presence of God, don't we? Which is absolutely right and absolutely true. But in breaking bread, he is hosting us. He is gathering us into who he is and his faithfulness. So, so important. It's not simply a symbolic act. We encounter Jesus as we do it, the wine stay, uh, the grape juice stays grape juice and the bread stays bread. But in it, we're encountering Jesus, gathering us in as the church and as we celebrate it together. We do it with great serious, but we don't do it in a somber way. We do it in a celebratory, loving way. We're going to do it together to remember all who Jesus is and how he calls us to faithfulness and empowers us to be faithfulness because of what he, be faithful because what he's done. So if the band could come up.